It's the 16th of June, 2015, and this is episode 222. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. This is Matthew Zipkin, and today we're talking about Augur, the decentralized prediction market. We're joined by Tony Sokic. He's a marketing leader at Augur, and also Joey Krug, who's one of the lead core developers. How's it going, guys? Pretty good. Cool. Why don't we just start off by talking about what a prediction market is? How is it different than gambling, and what's the basic theory of how it works? So the difference between a prediction market and gambling are, so with a prediction market, they're designed to elicit information. So a prediction market is a very general financial market. Any other financial market can be implemented as a subset of a prediction market. And so with a prediction market, what you can do is anyone can propose a question on anything, and uh, people essentially just bet on what they think will happen. And it turns out, according to a bunch of research, that you actually get really good odds estimates for future events, more accurate than almost anything else. They beat polls, they beat pundits. Even sometimes they beat Bayesian statistics. That's kind of amazing. Do you have any examples of something where that's occurred? Yeah. So if you look at the uh, UK elections happened a few weeks ago, people were saying that one party was going to win on the news, and everybody was pretty sure of that. But the prediction markets actually predicted the other party would win, and they were right. So this isn't just like a gambling sort of thing where you sort of put some money on the table, and if you win or lose, you either get money back or you don't. It's more like stock trading. Yeah, I would, I would say it's, it's more along those lines. Okay, cool. So I read your white paper, and it, it seemed like at the outset, there was a couple ways you guys could implement a decentralized prediction market, either be as a Bitcoin sidechain or as an Ethereum smart contract or even as its own altcoin. Which direction is the most likely now if you were to make a prediction? I would bet all my money on a uh, Ethereum sidechain. So what we looked at is we looked at building it on Bitcoin. We actually started building on Bitcoin. Uh, but we discovered that it was really complicated to add things to Bitcoin. You can do it, but it, it takes a really long time. You know, with sidechains, we figured that we'd just be implementing it as a sidechain of Bitcoin anyways. Like, we, there's, there's no hope of us getting this implemented in the core version of Bitcoin because it's too many additions for the core devs to be happy with it. So either way, it's going to have to be a sidechain of Bitcoin. And so we figured, why not just go with Ethereum and then sidechain that to Bitcoin? And it's interesting because the use of Ethereum has created, you know, different changes to our timeline. And, and that's why, you know, there's some confusion out there right now of when having a crowd sale. And it really depends a lot on the Frontier launch. So we're trying to make a blanket statement now to say, hey, we are going to announce our crowd sale roughly two weeks before it happens. And you will hear about it uh, right after the Frontier release from Ethereum is completed. And Joey might have a little more specifics on that, but I think I kind of covered it there. We really tried to make sure that everyone that's interested in Augur can get the most relevant and up-to-date information as soon as possible. So this is something that's had some confusion. And, you know, on, on our end, when we're working with such new technology, it has created, you know, time issues when it comes to folks that aren't necessarily developing that can't really tell how far along we are by looking at our code, but they're very interested in the project. I wanted to actually go out of my way to address that up front here in the beginning of this. Joey, you, you might have a little bit more on that as far as working with Frontier and Ethereum as well. So I think you pretty much covered um, all the bases there. The only thing I would add is that you know the easiest way to get tabs on Frontier's progress, and uh, by that, our progress as well, because we're kind of dependent on it, 
is if you go to the Frontier GitHub page, they have this section called Milestones, and it basically has a percent bar meter. And you can see basically how many issues they have left to fix before the Frontier launch. And so that's, that's pretty helpful, even for non-technical people, because it gives you a pretty simple metric to look at. Just, you know, what percent are we at? 97%. And for the listeners that aren't totally familiar with Ethereum's development schedule, can you talk about the difference between Frontier and I think Olympic and I forget what, how it goes? Right now we're in Olympic. What Olympic is, is it's pre-Frontier and it's a test version of Ethereum where basically you get some rewards for mining, but the money you get won't be accessible until Frontier. So it's basically just to incentivize more testing. And then once they finish whatever issues are left, you know, the main issues left before they can launch Frontier, they'll launch Frontier, which is basically a standard command line interface version of Ethereum. If you know Bitcoin, it's similar to Bitcoin D. And then after Frontier, they plan to move on to a thing called Homestead, uh, which will have the first uh, graphical user interface. They're calling it MIST. And that will be similar to Bitcoin QT, except you'll be able to run dApps on it. And then there's a couple other releases after that that are you know, just like polishing the edges. But those are the, the main ones. Cool. And at what point in the Ethereum development schedule is the pre-sale Ether coins accessible? Is that that's Frontier? Yeah, that'll be Frontier. Okay, cool. So how do sidechains work in Ethereum? I thought the whole point of Ethereum is that it's Turing complete and you can do whatever you want on it. Why would you need a sidechain? Oh, so the reason you'd want a sidechain is so you can use Bitcoin on it. So if you look at Ethereum right now, uh, all you're able to use is Ether, uh, which is fine, but it's going to have a lot smaller market cap than Bitcoin. It's going to have a lot lower liquidity. There is no Circle.com or Coinbase.com for Ether. And so, at least for us anyways, if you want people to be able to get money into prediction markets in a fairly easy way, and since we're limited to crypto, since we're, you know, decentralized, we can't just accept MasterCard and Visa. So that really limits it to Bitcoin. And so sidechains allow you to use Bitcoin on other chains. And so that's that's pretty useful for us because people can basically buy Bitcoin, send it to a, a sidechain, and then use it on Ethereum. I see. So the, the sidechain would have to connect to the Bitcoin blockchain as well then? That's right. Okay, that's very cool. I didn't realize that people were working on sidechain bridges between Bitcoin and Ethereum. So do you need the decentralized version of sidechains to be released with the Bitcoin soft fork and the SPV check opcode implemented for your process to work? So you could use a federated peg sidechain. Um, there's, there's people working on that between Bitcoin and Ethereum right now, actually, because since federated pegs don't require any modifications to Bitcoin, it's really just a matter of writing the code. So those will probably be you know ready fairly soon. But I like the SPV proof ones better because they're a bit less centralized and just having, you know, M of N people sign off on a transaction. Problem with the two-way peg, which is the decentralized version, so it's kind of nuanced. So they probably won't uh, allow Bitcoin directly to verify Ethereum SPV proofs. Um, the reason for that is Ethereum uses SHA-3, uh, Bitcoin uses SHA-2, and they don't really see any reason to add an implementation of SHA-3 into Bitcoin. So what this means is the way you would have to do it is there's one of two possibilities. One is you just fork Ethereum and haven't used SHA-2. And the other way is you make an intermediary sidechain which accepts uh, Ethereum proofs. And so you send the money to that one, and then you send it to Ethereum, which isn't that great for usability. So I anticipate if that happens, people will probably just use decentralized exchanges for most of their exchanging and only use sidechains for you know large transactions. I see. So the actual Augur prediction market is written in Ethereum, and you need to build the sidechain just to be able to get Bitcoin in there. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Are other Ethereum dApps, are they using this kind of model? It seems like it's totally disregarding Ether as an actual currency. 
You know, I'm not sure what other dApps are doing. The only other dApps that I'm like, you know, really familiar with is, is one called EtherX, and that's just an exchange between Ether and tons of other things. Uh, so they're, you know, they're pretty agnostic. You know, from what I've seen, I think most dApps will be fairly currency agnostic because Ethereum has this thing called the subcurrency API, and it just guarantees that any currency on Ethereum will have a send function and a get balance function. And so if you have those two things, that's really all you need. And so I, I imagine a lot of dApps will just say, you know, we'll let you use whatever currency you want, provided you support this subcurrency API. Okay, cool. I might have missed this, but if a Bitcoin sidechain is necessary anyway, then why are you using Ethereum at all? So that's kind of why we actually you know, went with Ethereum is because of that. If you modify the Bitcoin source code to add all the stuff we need, you're basically going to have to implement a bunch of new transactions. You're going to have to add new opcode scripts. And when you add all of that, uh, basically what happens is you've radically changed the security model of Bitcoin. So you lose the security benefits of Bitcoin. So then for us, it was a decision between, you know, do we want to take a few years to be able to get this launched or do we want to be able to do it in months? And using something like Ethereum, we can get it launched in months. And since at the end of the day, we plan to use sidechain anyways, uh, we went with the you know, shorter solution. And that's also nice because it allows us to iterate on things faster. You know, we can get a first version out there, you know, make modifications to it, release a second version. And we can do that a lot, a lot faster than we could with uh, Bitcoin. But if there's going to be a sidechain anyway, I guess merge mind or something with Bitcoin, I still don't understand why can't you implement the entire prediction market as a standalone application that just uses a sidechain to get Bitcoin in and out? Oh, so you're saying like... An Augur blockchain as a sidechain, forget Ethereum and just use the sidechain to get, you know, the currency in and out. Right. So we could do that. The problem with that is we could, either, we could write a blockchain from scratch. That would take a really long time as well. And so the other options are like, you know, fork an existing blockchain. Okay, so... Ethereum helps you out because it already has a working consensus algorithm and miners, plus the flexibility to implement all your weird opcodes. And then the sidechain is the last element to get money in. Yeah, it's mainly you, you hit the nail on the head when you said all of our weird opcodes. Um, <laughs> when if, if, you, you know, if we had to implement that by scratch without just being able to use a simple programming language like Ethereum has, I would take a really long time. Okay, cool. So now I understand the skeleton. So let's talk about it. So once we get Bitcoin into Augur, what happens? Let's say I wanted to bet on the outcome of the next presidential election. What would my process look like? So when you log on, basically you would search for presidential election 2016, or maybe you'd search for Hillary Clinton or Jeb Bush or something like that. And then all the markets on that would appear. Now, if there wasn't a market for it already, you could actually just make one. But let's say there is. So there's a market, you click on it, and you'll see two things. Let's go with a simple, will Hillary Clinton beat Jeb Bush? So that's a simple binary market. So there'll be yes, and there'll be no. And the odds of each of those add up to one. And so let's say Hillary's at 60%. That also means that if you want to buy a share in the outcome of Hillary, it's going to cost you 60 cents. And so if you buy 10 shares in Hillary, it's going to be $6 or 6 Ether or 6 Bitcoin or whatever. And if you're right and Hillary does end up winning, uh, you'll get $10 back. Okay, cool. So when you buy a share of Hillary Clinton, is someone else selling the share to you? So this is a really interesting aspect of our system. So when you make a prediction market, there's a few strategies. One, you can just use an order book. So in this case, it'd be a distributed order book. And that's where you basically, you know, match orders just like you do on the traditional stock market. The problem with this is it's actually not that good for information uh, you know, aggregation, which is what, what our key focus is. And if you want to get really good information, uh, the problem with order books is they have 
widespreads. So it's not unheard of for an order book to have, you know, 45 on Jeb and 55 on Hillary and or, or 60 on Hillary, and those don't add up. And so we basically use this thing called a market scoring rule. And how that works is you buy and sell these shares from an equation. And so this has a couple interesting properties. One is that in a traditional market, if you buy shares of Hillary, it doesn't necessarily mean that Jeb's odds will decrease proportionately. With a market scoring rule, they do, which is really good for the information aspect. And so the way this works is as more and more people buy and sell shares from this market scoring rule, it essentially adds liquidity to like a central pot, which in this case is just distributed on the blockchain. And you basically buy and sell shares from the central pot of liquidity. So when you buy a share, it's quote unquote created out of thin air at the moment that you purchase it. Right. And all the share purchases for yes and for no all get locked up into something like an address or a smart contract, and the money just stays there until the election's over. So this is an even more interesting aspect of market scoring rules. So they actually do allow you to sell uh, before the market's closed. So if you buy uh, Hillary at $0.40 a share, and then a bunch of other people buy Hillary and they move her up to $0.65 a share, if you want to, you can sell your shares right then and there. And so what would happen is you'd sell your shares, the price of Hillary would probably go down a bit because you sold them, and then you get your money back. And the way the market scoring rule is set up is basically it guarantees that there's always enough money in the system to pay out either side if they were correct at any given moment in time. So that's interesting. So if the price on Hillary goes up and then the night before the election, everybody, well, there must be an incentive for people to hold their Hillary shares. Otherwise, at the last minute, people could just profit take. The Hillary market would crash and end up being incorrect. So there's a few things there. Um, so I'll, I'll just to the two aspects I see here. One is, yes, there is an incentive to hold on to your shares. So if you sell, you're going to have to pay a trading fee to sell. If you hold on to them, you'll just get each share that you were right a dollar back and you don't have a fee there. Um, and then the other aspect is basically, so let's say that did happen and everyone sold their Hillary shares. Um, it, it would probably crash the price of Hillary. But what would happen is basically the market would just buy it back up as soon after you sold. If you look at the way a market scoring rule works, uh, let's say we had 5,000 shares of Hillary remaining and 200 for Jeb Bush. And it's the night of the election. We're about ready to close the market. So all the Hillary people start selling. Since it's 5000 to 200 a lot of those people are going to be able to sell before it pushes the price down. And it's only going to start pushing the price down once you get probably below 1,000 shares of Hillary left. So then at that point, the incentive really kicks in. And, you know, it's, it's in your incentive to not sell once, once you reach a certain point because you stand to make quite a bit more money if you just wait until the market's officially closed. I see. So we're kind of counting on the free market to buy something at a cheap price with a great value and effectively drive the price back up to once again accurately predict the outcome. Right. Okay. And in the example we're using, I don't know if this would, would actually work, but you know, let's say, uh, <laughs> let's say, God forbid, uh, Rick Santorum sweeps the election somehow. Is there, you know, can everybody lose? Um, so, well, actually, so it depends how you phrase the question, right? So if we phrase the question how I phrase it, which was, will Hillary beat Jeb Bush? The people who bet no would actually win in that case. Now, you can make markets that are called categorical markets, in which case, if you did it wrong, everyone could lose. So let's say you have a categorical market, and it's, will this person win the presidential election? And the only people you throw into your market are Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton. <clears throat> in that case, the problem does appear, because if Santorum wins, then who do you pay out? And in our system, basically, what would happen is our judges would just basically say, you know, it's 05 you know, you can't determine that outcome. 
and people will get their shares returned to them at 50 cents a share. So constructing questions properly is really key. The way that question should be phrased is, will it be Jeb, will it be Hillary, or will it be someone else? That way you cover all your bases. I see. Is it possible for both sides to win? If the question is phrased wrong and all the respondents say that it's equal, then could everybody get... Well, that's kind of what you're saying then, right? Everybody would get would have to get 50 cents per share. Right. Okay. And then um, is there an element of a house covering the bets somehow? I'm not, I'm not going to try to do the math in my head, but let's say nobody bets on Bush. Everybody bets on Hillary. Everybody turns out to be right. How are all those bets covered? There's no central house. Um, the way that works is basically when, when you um, initialize a market scoring rule market, it's, it's called a liquidity-sensitive uh, logarithmic market scoring rule. But, but anyway, when you create one, uh, if you're the market creator, you have the option to provide some initial liquidity to that market. And so what happens is in a case like this, where if everyone buys one side and nobody buys the other side, the money to pay out that market is going to come from mostly the initial liquidity. So, you know, if you put $100 initial liquidity in and people only buy Hillary, two things are going to happen. One is the price is going to vastly approach one because the more people buy her, the higher her price gets. And so you're not going to get a whole lot of volume because their price is just going to immediately shoot to one. And two, if the market closes at that point, uh, then what's going to happen is those people are going to be paid out from the initial liquidity pool. Okay, so as a market maker, you could actually potentially lose some money just by asking the network a question. Yeah, that's right. So as a market maker, you have to. there's a fine balance here. You have to set your initial liquidity high enough that people will actually use your market. Because if it's not liquid enough, people won't use it. And the other problem is if you set it too high, you may not make your money back in trading fees. So with a really lopsided market, you can still make a profit if you get enough volume to get enough trading fees to cover your initial liquidity, but it's a really you know fine balance. Um, I'm sure we'll have people making tons of calculators simulating scenarios saying, you know, if you're a market maker and you provide this much liquidity, uh, you need this much volume to, to make your money back, things like that. Okay, so the market maker gets transaction fees no matter what happens. And then can you actually make some money also depending on the w- one of the outcomes? Yeah, so the market maker gets, gets money from transaction fees and yeah, you're also right about that. So the market maker, depending on what the outcome is, one way a market maker can make a lot of money is if something that unexpected happens. So in that Hillary, you know, Santorum, Bush example, if people have bought a ton of Hillary and very little of anybody else, and the price of Hillary is like 99 cents, and somehow Santorum wins, in that case, the market maker is going to make a ton of money because he's only going to have to pay out the Santorum people, and he gets to keep the rest of the money. And since those people who bought Hillary, you know, paid quite a bit of money for it, 99 cents a share, he basically gets to pocket that. I see. So it also seems like there's a lot of rules here to incentivize market makers to actually ask good questions with clear answers. Yeah, that's right. Because if you ask a bad question with an unclear answer, um, you could very easily lose your money. Okay. So when I buy a share in one of these markets, does it work like a token? Is it something that I can just send to anybody with an auger address as a transaction? Maybe we meet in an alley, you give me a couple of dollars and I send you a token. So uh, you can actually you know, send shares around. It's not like implemented in our UI right now, but it's I did write a thing in the back end. And so basically, if you have these shares, you could send them around to somebody if you wanted. The main reason to do this would probably be uh, if you know someone who wants to buy at a certain price and you want to dodge the trading fee, uh, you could just trade it manually. Gotcha. Yeah. So there could be second markets for each of these markets. Right. So in the Augur network, we've got some type of token that's pegged to Bitcoin so that people can exchange money. Then you've got these share tokens. And there's also a third type of token for reputation, right? Right. Okay. Let's talk about that. Where does reputation come into play? How do you get it and uh, what can you do with it? Gotcha. So after 
something that happens. You need a way to coordinate the payouts. Traditional prediction markets like Intrade just use a centralized party and had them, you know, determine the payout. And there's a couple problems with that. One, the centralized party very easily can get shut down. That's what happened to Intrade. And two, uh, the centralized party can, you know, be wrong and there's no recourse. This happened in the 2012 elections with the Romney Santorum uh, Iowa caucus. And Intrade said that Romney won. Turned out he actually didn't. And the people who bet on Santorum lost all their money, even though they were actually right. And so the, the way we approach this problem is to basically have a bunch of oracles reporting on what actually happened. I think you guys interviewed uh, Truthcoin on this podcast a while back, and it's, it's the same idea. And so basically, at the end of you know, every few weeks, there will be a collection of all the markets that happened in the system. And if you're a reporter, you basically report, did it happen, did it not happen I don't know what happened. That's an option. And your report is weighted by this thing called reputation. And the reason we have this reputation token is if it's not weighted, uh, you can just make you know 10,000 accounts and attack the system. Uh, so you, you really need to weight reports by something. And the incentive for reporters is they get half the trading fees in proportion to how much reputation they have. The other half the fees go to the market maker. And the way you would get reputation is... So we're initially selling the initial portion into crowd sale to basically get people who are as incentivized to use it as possible uh, instead of just like giving it away. And then after that, you would just buy it on the open market. Okay. And is, do you have a name for the reputation unit coin or anything? Uh, we, we just call it rep. Okay. And is it mined? Is it you know, generated over time or is it all in the Genesis block or something? Uh, so it's in, the, it's in the Genesis block. It's a finite amount. And yeah, it's not generated over time. What's the incentive for anybody to give reputation to anybody else? Why don't the original crowdfunders just hold it forever and rule the market? So basically, the incentive to sell to someone else is someone will pay a high enough price. I used to show horses, and there's there's a phrase in the industry that's any horse is for sale, provided you have the right price. And it's the same thing for this. If somebody's willing to pay enough, someone will sell you their reputation. A common reason for wanting to sell reputation could be so if you have rep, you actually have to report every so often, otherwise you lose your reputation. So if there's some reason you can't report or you're tired of doing it or you don't want to do it, that would be one reason to sell. The other reason is just someone's offering more money than you think you could get from the future value of market trading fees. Okay, and then isn't there still sort of an attack vector here where somebody could buy up all the rep or will the price just be prohibitively expensive for that kind of attack? So... Um, you know, I think every crypto economic system has this attack factor, which is the, the classic 51% attack. You know, with this, it's, it is you a bit harder because of the reason you mentioned that if you start buying up a lot of something in a market, you shoot the price up like almost prohibitively high. Um, but it's still, you know, theoretically possible. We actually have Let's Talk Bitcoin's uh, Stephanie Murphy that just recently cut a voiceover for a video that is going to give a, a fairly basic explanation of how reputation works. We're hoping to release that in the next couple of weeks that will give a little more clarity to this because we really do like the term reputation, but it also, considering it's the token that really makes the whole system work, it's something where we want to make sure that users are aware that when we say reputation that we are referring to the token. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here. It's time for today's magic word. The magic word for episode 222 is yellow. That's Y-E-L-L-O-W. Yellow. You've got until about 10 a.m. Pacific time on the 23rd of June to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Okay, 
So now you mentioned that that there's reports every couple of weeks or something. This is kind of interesting because I I like how the decentralized systems incentivize humans to work for them. <laughs> so if I if I'm a reputation holder, then I've kind of got a job on the Augur network and I have homework I need to do every couple of weeks. And then so do I report on every market? Do I have to bet on a market to be able to report on it? Yeah, tell me more about that. How often do you need to report? How many things do you need to report on? So um, you definitely don't need to bet and. Um... We like, we like to keep those parts of the system as separate as possible so there's no you know perverse incentives to bet on something and then report wrong to try to make a profit. And then uh, the other aspect you mentioned is like how often do you have to report um, do you have to report on everything. And so for frequency we're, we're thinking of you know, every every eight weeks to do a reporting period. And basically all the events that expired in that past eight weeks you'd have to report on. And that's the way it is you know for like our alpha and beta. For the real version, though, there's this interesting feature called branching. This is something invented by uh, Paul Stork, who made, made the Truthcoin idea. Everything starts off in one initial pool, so you have politics mixed with you know science, mixed with sports, everything. It's all jumbled. And then once the reporters start getting overwhelmed, you know there's a few hundred events to report on in every period, which would take you you know a few hours. Then the system can branch off into separate subject categories. Uh, so initially, two categories maybe you know politics and everything besides politics and politics may branch into elections and geopolitical events and so on and so on and you can basically choose what category you want to report in i see but you're still required to report on every contest for that eight-week period in that in that category right okay and what kind of dollar value do you see these fees coming out to is it going to be a you know a few pennies or or what so you know, our, our default fee is like 2%. Um, if you look at, and that, that's like in the UI, if you look at places like Betfair in the UK, they charge 10%. And so we obviously can do a lot less than that since we're a decentralized system. Um, the market will, you know, set the fees. I, I anticipate that, you know, after the system's out a while, the fees will probably hover around 1% as a more new default, I guess. And so when you want to calculate, you know, how much money is that going to make? Well, it really just depends on, it's a pretty simple calculation. It's how much volume does the system get? And so let's say, you know, our fees are 1%. Uh, so half that, 0.5% is going to go to uh, the market creator. The other half is going to go to the reporters. And that's divvied up according to how much rep you have. So like if you own 10% of rep, uh, you'll get 10% of that 0.5%. And then and that basically scales, you know, according to how much volume is in the system. So if the system has, you know, like, $100 million in volume, yes, it's quite profitable. Um, in the early days, obviously, it, it won't. So it won't be that profitable. And then when the eight weeks come up, you just boot up the client and a, like a survey pops up with election results and sporting game results and stuff like that. And you just go through like a survey, check, check, check. Yep. Okay. And so, you know, obviously it's a crypto system. So we have pseudo anonymity. Is there any way to know who is reporting on which contest? So the only way to know that would be if, you know, you basically publish that information yourself, right? You know, you can link a Bitcoin address to an identity by, I guess you could, you know, try to find out by what purchases they made and correlate it that way. But, you know, the most sure way to know is just someone to say, this is my Bitcoin address and prove it somehow by signing a message. It's the same situation here. Okay, but generally we don't need to do that because it's not about expertise. Theoretically, the market makers are picking questions that anybody could just open a newspaper and find the answer, right? Yeah, exactly. They're, they're meant to be, you know, if they're, if they're not easy to find like that, if it's not easy to just Google the answer, or, you know, open CNN or whatever, uh, then it's probably not a good question for a prediction market. Okay, and then you reward honesty based on consensus, is that right? That's right. 
So uh, how does that work? If Hillary wins and she's there taking the oath of office and I go on Augur and I'm like, nope, it was Santorum. <laughs> so the way that would work is the idea is that lies are more variable than truth. Basically, if you look at when people tend to lie, their stories don't match up. You know, this happens all the time when police interview criminals. If they tell the truth, their stories tend to match up. If they lie, they tend to be completely different. And that holds generally holds pretty true. And so we take that idea and then we say, well, what's the easiest way to determine who's more variable? And the way to do that is right now we use this algorithm called principal component analysis. And, you know, in a nutshell, there's this vector and it's called a principal component. And basically you can see how much variance each person added to that. So if you say Santorum, your variance is going to shoot way up compared to everybody else who just, you know, reported Hillary. And so basically you would get docked reputation. And does that reputation, does it go to like the miners or the people who answered correctly? It goes to the people who answered correctly. Are there miners in the system? They're, what kind of reward do the miners get? There are miners. Um, they're just, you know, right now they're just the Ethereum miners, and that's probably what they'll be in the future. The rewards for miners are... Basically, when you, whenever you send a transaction on Augur, uh, you do have to pay a you know, small few cent uh, fee, just like you do on Bitcoin transactions, and that goes to the miners. That fee would be in the Bitcoin pegged derivative token inside the Augur market. So right now, it's just in Ether, but there, there are plans to basically allow you to use a subcurrency to do that. So in the future, you would be able to pay the fees with that Bitcoin pegged currency. Yeah, we've been talking about this. So when I'm betting on an outcome, I, am I betting with with Bitcoin or with Ethereum? You guys haven't quite got to the sidechain level yet? Right. So yeah, right now it's just, you're just betting at the Ether because, well, it's fake Ether actually because we're just testing things. But yeah, the sidechains haven't really, uh, they've released that elements thing, which is pretty cool, but they're not, you know, in live network yet. Uh, once that happens, we'll be able to start playing around with, you know, sidechain Bitcoin. Do you see that requiring a Augur hard fork of sorts, or do you think Ether and Bitcoin can both exist? So, yeah, they can both exist. So when you trade a market, the way I anticipate this being is you'll just be able to select what currency you want to use for your market. So you'll be able to select, you know, Ether or um, Bitcoin pegged currency. Okay, well, all the technical stuff sounds really cool. Uh, what kind of attention are you guys getting from other people in the space? Tony, I think you mentioned something off air about the exponential finance competition. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we, we were actually very fortunate and we're a part of something called the Exponential Finance Challenge or XCS Challenge. I did want to go in a little bit into this because it really was an honor to be a part of this and we, we were very successful. First of all, it, Exponential Finance is a conference and it's a very exclusive conference, basically focused around not just finance, weirdly enough, but there, there are other categories of startups and upcoming and cutting edge tech that are involved. What it basically was, was in addition to a conference, it, it also had this competition aspect and we, we made it to the finals. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a background to this, though, because I heard a couple misconceptions by people. That this was not a blockchain-exclusive conference. It really was toward any kind of cutting-edge you know, technology. And, and it was an honor because as soon as we submitted our application, they were very, very, very thrilled to have us. It was cool for me because the people that are behind this include CNBC and Singularity University, uh, which includes Ray Kurzweil, who's the director of engineering at Google now, and uh, Peter Diamandis, who's been extremely successful as well. So the exclusivity of this can be illustrated, I think, easiest in this way is that for attendees, tickets started at around $4,000, and it ended up selling out completely about a week before the event. So when for us, it was just the ability to explain and really demonstrate what we're creating, you know, one of the most influential audiences possible at a tech conference. It really wasn't another here's all kinds of blockchain startups or here's all kinds of, you know, just social media startups or whatever, you know, various events are like that. This was really geared toward 
an influential audience. And some of the judges that were in this contest included um, you know, CEOs of Crowdfunder, Manager Director of Barclays, uh, VP of Tech Partnerships for Wells Fargo, a bunch of other very influential people. And you know, out of 32 finalists, we made it to the finals. What they would do is they would take each company or startup or project, however you wanted to define it, and put you in one of three categories, which included finance, health and medicine, or breakthrough. We were slotted in the breakthrough category, and we were actually the only blockchain tech-related company involved, I think, other than, at least involved in the finals, other than one, which is Tether, which made it to the finance finals. We Unfortunately, we did not win the entire event, but what we did get was tons of great visibility in front of extremely influential people, and the more they seemed to learn, the more excited they were. With, with something like this, it was a whole new community that found out about it, and when you look at who's involved, it's even more thrilling and exciting. Well, cool. Congratulations. So you've got some big names that are watching you guys and sounds like a lot of people are excited. Absolutely. Then there are some that have, you know, joined us as advisors like Robin Hansen, who really is, you know, the original thought leader of, of this entire scene, if you want to call it that. And more and more influential, important and brilliant people are interested in the project. Is Robin Hansen the guy behind Truthcoin or is he a prediction market researcher? He's a researcher. He actually uh, coined the term idea futures. I believe it was in the early 90s. And I'm actually going to let Joey talk a bit about him too, because I think Joey's more familiar with breadth of his work, I should say. But he was actually a part of that whole cypherpunk scene in the uh, early to mid 90s. He posted on the mailing list and he, he's also a professor at, I believe it's George Mason University, published some very important works. Yeah, Hansen's pretty much the father of prediction markets. Yeah, he was first proposed by Hayek in like the 40s, I think. And then uh, Hansen picked it up again in the 90s and really ignited the field of academic research on it. I see. And yeah, I forgot to pick up this too. So what is Truthcoin? Is it a predecessor to Augur? Did you fork it or does it just sort of express some of the similar ideas? I'd say out of those predecessors, probably <clears throat> the most accurate. Uh, basically, it was this paper and idea published by Paul Stork. And he's a statistician that does research at Yale. He didn't really have time to, you know, implement it fully. So he just published his paper and he published a uh, consensus algorithm. And we, we kind of picked it up in August. And then back then we were planning to build on Bitcoin. We played around building on Bitcoin like through October. And then we eventually made the switch to Ethereum. But it's based on the same ideas. There's a couple differences, but they're relatively minor. So there was no actual implementation of Truthcoin. Right. And so the next thing I want to talk about is sort of like where this can go, because all the examples we've used so far are still basically gambling. There are also some other applications for this. Like I read uh, Vitalik's blog post, I think it was last year, about FutureArchy, or maybe it's pronounced FutureArchy. Is that part of your vision? Can you explain a little bit how FutureArchy works? So that's also one of uh, Hanson's ideas. It's probably one of the coolest applications of prediction markets. And you know, basically, at a very basic level, what FutureArchy is, is what if we make decisions by basically, you know, putting your money where your mouth is and essentially betting on what you think the best decision is? And um, he he actually gotten some companies to adopt, uh, you know, FutureArchy as a way of making decisions, at least for some things. Uh, the problem tends to be when you implement this in practice is the prediction markets will predict something like really accurately, and then you know high level management will kind of ignore it, and then when it turns out that the market was right. Uh, it makes high-level management look really bad. So a lot of companies have implemented this and then, you know, stopped after they after it made their management look bad. Some companies still use it. I think Google still uses prediction markets. HP still uses them. And then with FutureArchy, you can you can scale it from you know just making company decisions 
all the way up to, you know, local governments, state governments, even even national governments, theoretically. I don't understand. Why would Google use a prediction market for an internal conflict rather than just, you know, votes? So with the prediction market, you can actually incentivize people to provide information like you know, if you just do a simple voting-based system, so if we're deciding on a few things, you know, with votes, it's just like one vote per person. If we use, like, uh, Futurarchy, uh, you start out with a preset amount of money, and sometimes corporate prediction markets use real money. Sometimes they just use play money, which you can redeem for, like, gift cards and things like that. And you start out for the set amount, and there's a whole list of decisions that you can essentially, you know, you know, bet on what you think will happen or what you think should happen to provide the highest shareholder value. Let's say you have 10000 whatever, $10,000, for instance, and there are 10 decisions. If you're just making votes, it'd just be like 10000 here, 10000 there, 10000 there. Um, but with a prediction market, you can bet, you know, $7,000 on one decision because you're so confident in it. Um, and then, you know, not spend much money on the rest of the things. And so it provides, it provides more granular information than just a, a voting system would. I see. So you're saying you would distribute the initial $10,000 to the voters, or you're saying after the outcome of the prediction market, you divide up the $10,000 budget to, you know, if there were 60% votes over here and 40% votes over there? You're right the first time. You basically distribute the money initially, and then people bet on each of these decisions, which decision is best. And this is the other thing that I think is just so cool about prediction markets is for years in the Bitcoin space, people are always talking about how we can decentralize governments and use blockchain technology to sort of replace everything that's out there. And this type of system is sort of that. It's sort of like the first step for that. So you could say like, instead of a prediction market, which is will a minimum wage go up next year, you can actually have a prediction market where the question is, if we raise the minimum wage next year, will GDP expand? And so then the people who do want to raise the minimum wage, and it turns out they are right about expanding GDP, they get the reward. But there's also lots of ways for them to be wrong. The minimum wage could go up, GDP could crash, then those people wouldn't get the reward. And so the incentive is not just to vote for the thing that you want, but actually to predict the right outcome of your decision as well. Right. Yeah. Like I think Hansen or at least Paul Stork does, uh, calls it, you know, putting your money where your mouth is. Because you have you have pundits on TV who are espousing views about tons of things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they actually believe that deep down. Like if you ask them to put a thousand bucks on it, they might hesitate. And as a follow up to that regarding Robin Hansen and Futurarchy, um, we we did a blog post. If you go to augur.net slash blog, one of the things we talked about and one of the things that we mentioned there. And uh, I do a podcast as well that recently had Robin Hansen on it. And he went into a little bit on that, too. It's, it's very much geared toward decentralized technology. But if you look to Decentralized.fm, we just spoke with Robin Hansen at length. And this is not something officially affiliated with Augur. But for any of the listeners that maybe want to know a little bit about what, what this Futurarchy thing is, I would recommend that, that interview as we, in a half hour or 40 minutes, we covered a lot. Anything Robin Hansen that any listener would want to study, you're going to learn something. I will say that for sure. And it's probably going to be really interesting. Right. Do you... Do you see that kind of implementation coming to Augur in, in the distant future? Yeah, so Futurarchy markets are like, you know, slightly different due to the way the reward mechanism works. I have that on our, our roadmap for our beta to, to implement those. And yeah, I think it, that'll be really exciting because, you know, the, the ideas currently with like, you know, decentralizing governance with, with blockchains are really super idealistic and like the, you'd actually just replace the government with them. Uh, but prediction markets, even though it's also really idealistic, uh, they can be a bit more complementary because they help you make better decisions. So it's not like we'd have to just 
get rid of our entire government, which is pretty impractical. And you could just help them make better decisions. Right. That's very cool. The, the downside of this, and actually a comment I made on Vitalik's blog that sort of went unanswered, is like for that to really work as a governance system, you really need a society of very well-educated people about how it works. And that, that to me seems like just the biggest impractical thing about Futurarchy as like, you know, an actual implementation of government. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you, it requires education and definitely explaining how it works because it's also a very unintuitive idea. It doesn't make sense that it would work on a first glance. Augur is a decentralized system, so I always kind of have these two questions for all decentralized systems, which is what happens if it gets forked and replaced? And then I guess you already answered the question of how you guys are going to make money. It's from the initial crowd sale, and then you're just going to let it go? Yeah, and we'll, the founders of us will, will each hold a bit of reputation, so we'll, we'll make some money from that as well. And what was the first question again? Uh, open source being forked and forgotten. <laughs> oh, right, right. So there, you know, my view on that is, so for this system to work, it requires a really good distribution of, of reputation holders who are incentivized to report accurately. And so in my view, the only way a fork would be successful without the consensus just failing would be if they also did a crowd sale. Uh, which I think would, it'd be kind of hard to do to just copy the project and then say, hey, we're doing a crowd sale reputation as well. Right, I see. You're competing on the actual reputability of your reputation holders. Right. Okay, cool. Um, what else is up? Do you guys, are you looking for developers? Uh, where can people get in touch? Uh, to get in touch, just uh, go to our website, auger.net, and there's, you can basically join our Slack group there. And in addition, you know, there's always tons of different social media outlets. Uh, I think the one we're most interactive on as is, is a group is Twitter. So I would say follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash augurproject. GitHub, our GitHub page, github.com slash augurproject. We do have a YouTube channel. You can find our channel at youtube.com slash augurnetworkproject. That's something we're posting every couple weeks, and we're going to be posting more and more as we get closer to not only the alpha that's coming very soon, but the, um, the crowd sale. And we have some awesome videos. The one I recommend is the How Augur Works video for any new users. In about two minutes, it does a really good job of you know explaining everything else that we kind of went into more detail here. All right, Tony, Joey, thank you guys so much for joining us. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Joey, Tony, and Matthew. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin. See you next time.